And the scripture this morning is out of uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And if you'll join me as we read the Nicene Creed out of your hymnal, you can find it on page 881. It's the one at the top. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic or Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brandon. Hope you keep your Bible open to Revelation. Uh, Chapter 2, we're starting a sermon series on the seven churches of the Revelation. These Seven churches, by the way, are real places in Asia Minor, or what is today Turkey, and I've been there, Mary's been there about 12 years ago, uh, in 2007, Mary and I, and many of, of you from Calvary Church went on a Seven Churches of the Revelation tour with Dr. Mark Wilson, whom many of you know, and is a son of the church through now deceased Wayne and Idilla. Uh, Wilson and Dr. Mark Wilson also led our recent Holy Land trip about a year and a half ago. But let's set the stage for Revelation. If you just look uh, a page on the other side of the page to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a revealing, the whole book is a revealing of Jesus Christ. He's like behind the curtains, and this is a revelation of Him, of Jesus. And then Revelation 1.3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. So, uh, this book of the Bible in particular, although I think the whole Bible 
Uh, you'll get blessed if you read it. But this particular book, it says, if you read this book, blessed are those who read it, and blessed are those who hear and take it to heart. Hey, you are going to be blessed this fall, and that is a promise from Jesus. And the story of Revelation is this. Jesus picked 12 disciples to spend a particular time with him when he was on earth. And one of them was this young man named John. And John was there when he died. And John was there when he was buried. And John was there when he rose from death. And he, he never, as a devout Jew, would have worshipped Jesus as God unless he had seen him, actually seen him, risen from death. And he saw Jesus rise and he spent 40 days with him. And he saw Jesus preaching. He saw Jesus teaching. He saw Jesus continuing his ministry and proclaiming his resurrection. And John was there when he ascended back into heaven. And John then, he became a powerful leader in early Christianity. And John was preaching and teaching. And he saw over the course of some decades, all the other disciples, all the other apostles die Uh, brutal, bloody, martyrs' deaths. And they tried repeatedly to kill John, but he didn't die. In fact, uh, tradition says on one occasion they tried to boil him alive in a vat of oil, and he did not die. And so they exiled him uh, to this island of Patmos. And we went there, too. It's about a three-hour boat ride from Ephesus. Anyway, in Revelation 1, verse 10, we read that it was the Lord's day that he received this revelation. It was, it was Sunday, the, the day of resurrection of Jesus. And John was alone, and he's away from fellowship, and all the other apostles are dead, and he's alone. He's the remaining disciple of Jesus from the original 12, and he's in a very lonely place, exiled on an island, and Jesus comes down to visit him on this island to visit him from heaven. And then Jesus gives John seven letters to deliver to seven churches. And they begin with this letter to the church at Ephesus that Brandon just got through reading. The city of Ephesus, by the way, in its day, was a very, very large city, one of the three largest cities in the nation at its time. And it was the leading city of Asia Minor, perhaps Maybe a quarter of a million people live there. And this is one of the most significant uh, archaeological excavations of this period of history on earth. I mean, there's really nothing that matches it in majesty. In fact, it was my favorite part of the, the tour that we took. And this is a very important city because it was a lot like Fargo. You know, Fargo has, you know, I-29 going through it and I-94 going through it. This was a place where people would go through either by ship or, or by foot. It was a place that people would always go through. And we read in Acts 19 that from Ephesus, from Ephesus, the good news of Jesus rang out through the whole region of Asia Minor because this was the premier city of Asia Minor in its day. And that brings us to Jesus' letter, his word for the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. So I hope you're there in your Bibles, whether you have one with you. I like to see people carry their Bible to church, but we always have Bibles in the pews. And just follow along with me. And in these verses, I think we see that Jesus is exalted. He is the all-knowing. He is the all-seeing. He, a, a sovereign Lord and God, and he sees exactly what's happening in Ephesus as well as the other locations um, 
of the seven churches of the Revelation. And he speaks, I think, with great uh, clarity, uh, telling them where they're succeeding, where they're failing, and what he commands them to do. But ultimately, Jesus, he is the head of the church. Uh, He's the senior pastor, and so these are his words to those living in Ephesus in that day. And as we're going through these letters, I want you to think, you know, I wonder what, I wonder what Jesus would write to Calvary Church in Fargo. But Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write. And as we read uh, of these seven letters of the seven churches, there are a few things that are, are kind of consistent. One is that every church has an angel that's appointed by God as kind of a spirit being to guard and to oversee the well-being of that church and those people. So every church has like physical human leadership and has angelic supernatural leadership. And it goes on to say in verse one, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And this may have been by the Lord Jesus, kind of a, a criticism of the Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian declared himself to be the Lord. He declared himself to be God. He declared himself to be the savior. And Christians often referred to him as the beast. <laughs> and, and he may be the beast mentioned in Revelation 13. I mean, Bible commentators debate that point, but Domitian actually named a few months of the year after himself. And it was customary after an emperor died Uh, that then they would declare him to be God because he had gone to the other world, you know? Uh, Well, Domitian declared himself to be God at the beginning of his reign, uh, which was was crazy arrogant. And one of the things he did to demonstrate that that is that he minted coins with his own face on it. Uh, You you think of this, you know, we've got coins, you know, uh, for example, the United States of America with dead presidents, uh, but it would be a bit presumptuous for a living president to begin his presidency by minting money with his face on it. Domitian has, hasn't even done anything yet, but he's just declared himself to be God by putting his face on those coins. And through archaeology, they found one of those coins that was minted, and it had Domitian uh, sitting on the globe with seven stars. And so the people of Ephesus were walking around with uh, coins in their pocket that had their emperor, Roman emperor, who's worshipped as a god, sitting as a god, ruling and reigning as the sovereign with the seven stars. And I, I think this is Jesus kind of just making a little bit fun of Domitian, saying, you know, that guy makes coins, but I'm actually the one who sits among the seven stars. I'm the one who rules over all creation, and Domitian is a counterfeit god, and he is not the king. I am the king of kings. Verse 1 continues, who walks among the seven gold, gold lampstands. And I think this probably refers to the churches that are mentioned uh, here in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. The church here is kind of typified as a lamp. Uh, listen, in a place that's filled with demonic activity and darkness and paganism, Christianity is to come like a light, and Jesus says he is the light of the world, and the church is actually to be like a lampstand, and we are to talk about Jesus and love and serve like Jesus so that others living in spiritual darkness might be attracted to him and transformed by him. And this is his imagery of the church. And so on other occasions where Jesus says that, you know, if the church doesn't repent of its sin and correct its ways, 
He's going to come and he's going to take away their lampstand. In verse 5, it says that. And he's essentially saying, you know, if you're not going to burn brightly for me, you know, I'm going to come and I'm going to blow out what remains. And you will no longer be a church. In fact, I'm going to shut you down. And he goes on then and he has commendations and he has criticisms and I think his encouragements and his commendations are are many. And let's look at the first one. First of all, he commends them because they were, you know, they're basically a wonderful church, but they were a serving church. Verse 2, I know your deeds. They were a serving church. They served faithfully. These are people who work hard. These are people who volunteer their hours, like all the people that were just standing up here, and many of you sitting in the pews. These are people who day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, people are coming to Ephesus for training, and, and Christians are coming in from around the regions to Ephesus, and classes are being held, and you know, like pastors need to be housed, and missionaries need to be fed, and funds need to be raised, and people need to be commissioned, and they're serving faithfully. They're absolutely devoted to the cause of Christ. Jesus says, I don't have any criticism of your service because because of that service, this town of Ephesus became the epicenter for missionary activity in the entire region. To, To quote Paul again in Acts 19, the gospel just rang out from this place in all Asia Minor because of these people. And you know what? We don't know their names. They weren't pastors. Some of them probably weren't elders and deacons. They were just faithful Christians, And so Jesus commends them. They're a serving church, but not only a serving church, they were a sacrificing church. It says uh, they, they had hardship, and, and verse 2 talks about their hard work, and that word actually means toiling to the point of exhaustion. You have endured hardship, and the truth be told, this was a difficult place to minister. I mean, people coming through all the time, spiritual opposition of all sorts, of all kinds. I mean, there were some 50 gods and goddesses there that people worshipped, and prostitution was legalized there. It was a difficult place. And remember the god Artemis? Remember, if you read chapter uh, 19 of Acts, you know, Paul was brought into this this amphitheater that we got to visit, and there was a riot that went on. They say, when you preach the gospel, it's either a riot or a revival, and there was a riot going, and they were shouting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and so very difficult place, and so they were a serving church, they were a sacrificing church, and and, and Jesus also commends them for being a steadfast church. That word perseverance is there in verse 2. They kept going. When the going was tough, they didn't quit. And so Jesus commends them. Uh, They were a serving church, a sacrificing church, a steadfast church. They were also a separated church. Verse 2, they didn't tolerate wicked men who claimed to be apostles, but they are not. In other words, they had sound doctrine. I mean, talk about the Apostles' Creed. They believe that. They do that Apostles' Creed. They're not heretics. They don't have false doctrine. They're not reading goofy, crazy books. They're not believing new myths and fables and folklores. They're not chasing crazy, misquoted scripture and false teaching. And he says they didn't tolerate wicked men who claim to be apostles but are not. And Jesus says, you know, you guys, you Ephesians, you're smart. You're humble. 
and you open the Bible and you see what it actually says and you test everything by the scriptures and you've rejected all of the false teachers. And even think of this in our own day, how popular it is, false teachers and false doctrine, crazy instruction. Imagine how powerful it was here in Ephesus because Christianity kind of had a root here in Ephesus. And here's what the cults do. The cults come in all the time right behind the Christians. I mean, historically, let's say when Billy Graham comes to town, he came here in 87, I believe. Uh, then at, right after that, the Mormons come to town and the Jehovah Witnesses come to town. They're part of that cleanup crew and they roll into town right afterwards and they wait for people to hear about Jesus. And then they come and they twist the truth. Same thing was happening in Ephesus. Lots of false teachers, lots of spiritual leaders, lots of goofy new books and strange new ideas in the name of being biblical. And he says, you know what? You've not followed that. You guys are Bible-believing. You guys are truth-telling. You guys are, have a heart for following uh, Jesus, you know, a heart-following people of God. And, and he commends them for that. And even mentions by name one group, the, the Nicolaitans. In verse 6, it says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Not that he didn't hate the Nicolaitans, but he hates the practices of the Nicolaitans. The word Nicolaitan means to conquer people. Nicolaitan means to conquer people. So they were the lord it over type people. And it says you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Hate's a strong word. And so what happens is sometimes when Christians are faced with false teaching, they say, can't we just love them? Yes, we can love them. But we have to hate what they are teaching. And some of you need to hear this because you think the answer is to love everyone and to consider everything. And some people are deceptive. And some people are in it for the money. And some people are working for the enemy. And you could pray for them and want good for them, but you should not accommodate them or tolerate them because they are leading you astray, and that is not good for you. Jesus commends them. They're a serving church, a sacrificing church, a steadfast church, a separated church. They're also a suffering church who patiently bore their burdens and toiled without fainting, and they did this all for his name's sake, in verse 3. And so all of this is commendation. I mean, would you agree with me on that? It was just Jesus saying, hey, man, they're doing pretty good. I wish we were like that. I mean, wow. I mean, if you were to get this letter here at Calvary on a Sunday, let's say, you know, I gathered everyone together and I say, hey, we got a letter from Jesus and we know it's from him because it's all written in red ink, right? And it's just amazing. And we got a letter from Jesus and then... And then uh, I, I read this aloud, and that's what would have happened in the congregation. Can you imagine reading that and hearing that? I mean, he knows what we're doing. He knows how we're serving. He knows that we're biblical, and we're steadfast, and we're committed, and we're devoted. He knows this, and that would be fantastic if that was the end of the letter. But he has some criticism as well, and the big criticism is this. You're not very loving. You've got heart trouble. You have lost your first love. What's first love? It's the devotion to Christ that so often characterizes a new believer. Fervent, personal, uninhibited, excited, openly displayed. It is the honeymoon love 
of the newly married couple. Jesus is saying, I have this against you. Where's your first love? Where's the wonder? Where's the passion? Has your spiritual life become routine? Are you going through the motions? Where's the hunger for my word? Where's that desire to please me and to serve me? Where's that excitement? Where's that first love? You know, as a Christian, you can become unloving. Yeah, it's true. And that's what happened to these people in Ephesus. They lost their love for the Lord. They lost their love for the other Christians. They lost their love for the lost. They didn't have the wrong books on the shelf. They didn't have the wrong teachers in the pulpit. He wasn't criticizing them because they weren't generous givers or faithful servants or patient endurers or overcomers. He says, you know what? Your church is absolutely dutiful. Your church is faithful. But I know your heart. And it's gotten a little bit calloused. It's gotten a little hard. And it's not very loving. And the result is, he says, you've fallen from where you started. When you started, there was a lot of love in your church. Love for each other. Love for the leaders. Love for non-Christians. Love for lost people. Love for the Lord. And it's not that they hate and despise. They're just sort of done being very loving, being patient, being kind, gracious, and understanding. What oftentimes happens, we say, you know, we're Bible-believing. Okay, but are you nice? Because the Bible says love a lot. Well, we speak the truth, but do you speak the truth in love? Because the Bible says we are to speak the truth in love. And what could happen for those who are like the Ephesians, it's truth and and works and perseverance, but not love and not grace and not kindness. And so it becomes very heavy-handed and authoritarian and a little bit cold. How many of you, and you don't need to raise your hand, (laughs) could this be you? You're not a heretic. You're not a false teacher. You haven't gone apostate. You've not walked away from God. You haven't stopped giving, serving, reading, caring, trying. But you have seen a decrease in loving, and that is Jesus' word. And it's interesting because it's really hard for us to judge someone's heart, right? We don't know. I mean, one of the most subjective things in the world is whether or not somebody is loving. And Jesus says, I know your heart, and I don't see it full of love. And how do we become Ephesians? My fear is that, you know, when we go to the text, we just read it kind of like historically. You know, it's, it's interesting because there's a number of archaeological things to consider, or we read it theologically, and then it allows us to criticize, you know, all these other people, and, but then we can read it humbly. And when we do that, we come under the scriptures, and we say, I may be a lot like those Ephesians, or I could become a lot like the Ephesians, and so this word is not just for them way back then. It's for all the churches. It's for me. It's for my church as well. And I'll give you a couple of ways I think it's possible for us to become like the church of Ephesus. Number one, we can become like the church of Ephesus if we pit truth versus love against each other, right? I mean, Jesus came full of what? Grace and truth, right? Grace and truth. Some people are grace people. Some people are truth people. And here Jesus is saying, I want you to put on truth wrapped up in grace. 
I want there to be love around the truth. And some of you are grace people, you're love people, uh, your answer to everything is just be nice, you know, love, patiently endure. Some of you are truth people, right? The Bible to you is like a series of bullets called verses, and you've always got one in your chamber, and you're ready to go, right? You know, no, no, no. Leviticus, Ephesians, Corinthians, Romans, you know, boom, boom, boom. And Jesus is saying, good verses, you hit the bullseye. But that person didn't feel like they were really loved because they're bleeding right now. They didn't feel like that encouraged them to repentance. And it just crushed them towards shame and guilt and condemnation. When the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so what we don't want to do is to pit love and grace against, you know, against truth. We want to say that the truth must be communicated by someone who is loving. But what can happen is we can become like the Ephesians when we elevate truth and we devalue love or we devalue love for non-Christians or other religions or people who annoy us. You get annoyed by anyone? People who oppose us, people who criticize us, people who mock us. Jesus says, basically, we need to say the right thing at the right time, in the right way, with the right motives. Truth, yes, with an airbag of love. Otherwise, we're just going to decimate people. And certain churches do this, and certain pastors do this, and I know I've done this. Certain Christians do this. They just breathe fire on people and incinerate them rather than speaking the truth to them in such a way that invites them to turn from sin and to meet God and his people and to have a change of life through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. How can we be like the Ephesians, not only pitting truth and love against each other, but also, number two, pitting doctrine against the Holy Spirit? Think about this. We can become like the Ephesians when we listen only to our doctrines and we stop listening to the Holy Spirit. What can happen is you read the Bible so long and you you got all these books about the Bible and you're under so much teaching and education, all of a sudden you've got most of your questions answered and you've got all your verses and these nice, neat little categories and all your systematic theology, systematization, you know the word I'm trying to say, you know, basically, you know, you got it all figured out and then all of a sudden you don't need to pray much anymore because you've got it all figured out. And because you have a theology that tells you what to do. And you don't need to listen, really, to the Holy Spirit anymore. Because you have a theology that directs all your steps now. I'm not saying that we should avoid uh, doctrinal distinctives. You know, these groups got together for a long time to develop those creeds. To find out what Christians should believe and agree upon. But we still need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen? Yeah. We still need to be led by the Holy Spirit. We still need to listen to the Holy Spirit. We still need to remain teachable. And that's why one of the things that he says to each of the seven churches is this. Whoever has an ear, let him hear to what? What the Spirit has to say to the churches. And what he's saying is you're not listening to the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit did inspire the writing of the Scripture. And it is perfect. It's true. It's flawless. 
and it's good. And the Holy Spirit is God, and he also dwells in the believer, and he will guide us into the truth. And Jesus, that's what Jesus said in John's gospel. And what that means is he'll take the truth of the Bible, and then he'll use it to lead us and to shape us and to guide us and to inform us and to direct us. But you cannot live by the word of God without yielding to the Holy Spirit. And that's why we have all these classes that are being offered. There are even certain theologies, and one is called cessationism, that essentially says that the Holy Spirit doesn't operate today like he once did. It's just a clever way of saying that we don't need him like we used to, and that's not true. We need him every moment of every day, and every Christian always has. And we need him to lead us. We need him to guide us. We need him to convict us and to instruct us. We need the gifts of the Holy Spirit to build up the church. And one of the ways we can become like the Ephesians is we get so consumed with our studies and with our systematics that we forget that Jesus, he's alive. And we're supposed to have a relationship with this Jesus. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us and we're supposed to follow him. And so then Christianity goes from a relationship that we have, that we enjoy, to just a belief system that we kind of adhere to. And I want to submit to you that it's both. Christianity is a belief system that we adhere to, and it's a relationship that we enjoy, but it has to be both. And when it says that they lack love, they were weak on that relational enjoyment of Jesus and his people and lost people. Truth versus love, doctrine versus Holy Spirit. I think we become like the Ephesians when we, number three, tell others to repent and we don't. <laughs> it's a classic, it's classic religion. And that's not Christianity, it's religion. We tell other people to repent, but we don't. We tell them everything's wrong in their life, but we really don't examine our own. And the result is we get very proud about this. We get very haughty, uh, self-righteous, judgmental, critical, and difficult. And I know that this is something that happens in my own life, and I think it happens in all of our lives, that we could see others' sin a little more clearly than we can see our own. And we could have a passion for them to stop sinning, but we ourselves, uh, we give ourselves permission to continue to sin in our own vices. And what happens is, sadly, even with some preaching and teaching, it only tells sinners to repent of their sin. It doesn't tell the religious people to repent of their self-righteousness. And the result is the church is filled with these religious people who are self-righteous and have a contempt for those who are non-Christians, who are just stuck in their sin. There's no empathy. And so it is true that non-Christians need to repent of sin and that Christians need to repent of sin, and sometimes the sin that Christians need to repent of is religion, it's pride, it's legalism, it's judgmentalism, it's self-righteousness, it's works. It's this feeling that I'm better than you because I don't do what you're doing. And as soon as that happens, we feel free to tell everyone to stop sinning, but we stop repenting of our own sin and the sin that sometimes we need to repent of is just a lack of love. And those are Jesus' words. You're telling them all to stop, but you need to stop being so mean. You need to stop being so harsh and so cruel and impatient, so selfish, so petty. So last, we can become like the Ephesians when Jesus becomes more of a concept than a person. 
Let me say this. I love the Bible. I've been studying this Bible for 40 plus years. I love books too. I love Christian books. I know when my mom became a Christian, her bedroom turned into a Christian bookstore, and I kind of took after that. And I love the Bible. I've been studying it for a long time, and I, I have lots and lots of books. I love books. I love to study. I love to discover truth. I love to discover uh, truth in the Word of God. But you know what can happen over time is Jesus can become uh, more of a concept than a person. He's like a, a philosophical construct, a historical figure, a moral example, but he's not a living Lord. And so you really don't talk to him like you used to, you know, with a childlike faith, which is prayer. And you don't take time for silence. You don't take time for solitude and to be alone with him and invite him to come and, and spend time with you and enjoy his presence and be with him as a living Lord. And sometimes we even have theologies that justify this and we have ways of characterizing Jesus into some, you know, some, some, something out here uh, or just like a historical person. But let me say something. Jesus is a person. <laughs> He's alive. He's ruling and reigning as Lord, God, Savior, King, and Christ, and he's happy to come and meet with you as he's happy to come, as he was happy to come and meet with John. John, uh, in the Revelation, uh, in that cave on that island of Patmos, and some of us will not have that degree of supernatural revelation, but he's willing to be with you, and I think this is a time for solitude and silence and repentance and prayer and Bible reading and you know, journaling if you don't do that and singing and worship. Turn your technology off. Get, get, get with Jesus. Get time with Jesus. He's alive. He wants to be with you. And sometimes he is, but we're so dominated by the gods of hurry, worry, and busy that we miss those divine moments to be with the Savior. Is Jesus a living Lord for you? Or is he just an idea a concept, a systematic theological position, a historical ideal. Be careful, be careful. Sometimes those who know the most about Jesus know Jesus the least. They could tell you all the facts, but it's more like someone who is quoting a book they've read than a friend that they've made. And you know what I'm talking about? Did you ever meet anybody and you could say, you know, all of what you're saying is true, but it just feels like you're quoting uh, the book you just read. And you meet somebody else who knows Jesus, and they may be saying the same thing, but it sounds like a friend that they've made, and there's joy in their heart, and there's life in their voice, and there's hope in their eyes. Oh, let me tell you more about Jesus, and this is what he's done in my life, and this is who he is. It's, it's a friend they've made, not just an idea they believe. So there's accommodations, there's criticisms, and then there's a challenge, and we're going we're gonna to end uh, pretty quick here so that we can partake of this special meal together where God demonstrated his love in such a way. You know, even though we were sinners, Jesus died for us. But what's the challenge? First love can be restored. How? Remember. It says, remember the height from which you've fallen. And it's in the present tense. In the Greek language, it's keep on remembering. Keep on remembering what we've lost and cultivate a desire to remain in that close communion with Jesus. Uh, remember and then repent. Uh, change our minds. Confess our sins to the Lord. And it says if you don't repent, 
I'm going to remove your lampstand. I mean, this was a good church, all those good things, but yet they lost their first love, and if we don't repent, he's going to remove our lampstand. And then repeat. Repeat the first works. Do things that you did at first that have gone by the wayside, like prayer and Bible study and meditation and serving and worship and a quiet time. I always tell couples, if they got trouble, you know, why did you get married in the first place? What did you do back then when you were in love together? Start doing that stuff. And it'll come back. And if you overcome, it says here, Jesus will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Just like in the Garden of Eden, because of sin, paradise lost. Because of Jesus, paradise restored. And so we have an awesome opportunity to partake of this holy meal. It's a, it's a demonstration of the love of God, and Jesus wanted us to remember this often. He wanted us to partake of communion often. Some people take it more than others. John Wesley used to take communion every day. And I know that could get routine and routine, but you know, I think it's good that we take it off often so that we can remember the awesome love that God has for us. And he sent his one and only son to live a life that we can't live and then to die the death that we cannot die. And he died in our place and his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And we're gonna celebrate that today. It's a joyful thing, but it's also a time when the Bible says that he made himself known to them in the breaking of the bread. And that's what I'm gonna ask God to do, that he would make himself known to you. So Lord, we love you today. We just thank you, Lord, uh, for the letters uh, that you gave to all the churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and this particular one to the church at Ephesus. And Lord, we wonder, what, what would you write to Calvary? What are we doing okay at, and where do we need uh, to be called back to you? Lord, is it that we have lost our first love in some ways? And Lord, you're calling us to repent and to return to you and to do the things that we did at first. And we know that uh, the communion table is one of those things. Lord, it could be routine. It could be, oh, here we go again, and take the juice, take the bread. But Lord, I pray that you would make yourself known to us in the breaking of the bread, that you would bless these elements, that you would use this time, Lord, to demonstrate again your love and your passion for us so that we can have a passion for you and go out and make those disciples and and make more disciples and teach the disciples to make disciples, Lord. This is, this is our heart. So, Lord, we just want to commit this time to you and to the word of your grace that's able to build us up and to give us an inheritance with all the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, go now and remember to love God uh, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love God your neighbor as yourself. Don't lose that first love. Amen?